North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Um, well, uh, welcome everybody to um, Riggs Library, the historic Riggs Library um, at, at Georgetown University. Um, and we're very happy to uh, spent some time this afternoon talking with uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Mark Lambert about the recent uh, state visit by President Yun of South Korea to the White House. Uh, my name is Victor Cha. I'm Vice Dean and uh, Professor of Government at the School of Foreign Service uh, and Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS. Um, and we want to thank uh, the State Department um for uh cooperating and putting this event together as well as the asian studies the asian studies program um so before we begin let me properly introduce um deputy assistant secretary lambert this is difficult to do just because we've known each other for a long time and um and uh i can go through his entire bio but then <laughs> then the uh, i think we'd uh we then have to conclude the program because it's so extensive, but uh, let me just say that um, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Lambert uh, has a very, very deep, deep experience on Korea. Um, he was at one time the top ranking foreign service officer covering Korea at the State Department. That is the director of the Office of Korean Affairs. Um, he also um, served as special envoy for North Korea, or six party talks for North, no, Korea, North Korea. For North Korea. Um, and actually, a very critical time uh, in our relations with North Korea, uh, where he was doing a lot of work both on the sanction side as well as on the diplomacy side. Um, but in addition to that, he has served in Beijing. I, and your your regional expertise is is it China or is it? It's more China. China right? yeah. It's more China. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he served uh, in Beijing. He, he has served in Southeast Asia, uh, in Hanoi, Bangkok as well. Yeah. Um, so really, um, uh, a wealth of experience on Asia broadly. He sort of embodies the Indo-Pacific strategy. I bet you no one's ever said that about you before. Right? <laughs> Increasingly <laughs> looking like <laughs> uh, But it's uh, it's really a pleasure to welcome here welcome you here to Georgetown um, to talk about this summit. So we're really, really happy to have you here. Um, so um, maybe we could begin by um, first uh, talking about the significance of a state visit, yeah. right? So there aren't many of these. Um, uh, they're, they're considered to be uh, extre an extremely high honor yep. right, that is given by the White House to a foreign head of state. Uh, do you want to sort of elaborate for the students and the Georgetown community about what a state sure. visit means? Well, and, and uh, Dr. Cha is exactly right. A state visit, you know, what we do for a living is a very old-fashioned sort of thing. 
There are a lot of protocols. There are a lot of of trimmings of um, that remind you of 100 or even 200 years ago. And a state visit fits into that. So a state visit is a gift of sorts from one uh, governmental leader to another. It includes as many of the official meetings that you have in a regular summit, uh, but also some protocol trappings. There's a dinner there. In the case of President Yoon's visit, there was also a state lunch. Uh, there tends to be uh, social events and musical sorts of happenings and those sorts of things. I think it's significant because President Biden's been in office for two years. This is only the second state visit he's hosted. He hosted French President Macron a bit ago, and we all live in the D.C. area. We see how the traffic gets snarled up. And so it's significant that he chose as his second state visitor to Washington, President Yoon of the Republic of Korea. I think um, it was a pretty easy sales job we had to do to the White House because this year marks the 70th anniversary of our alliance with the Republic of Korea. Uh, Korea, you know, it's just, it, it is gratifying. And I know I'm speaking to a, to a well-educated audience on things Korean, where we've gone in those 70 years. And I think some of this President Yoon himself highlighted during his address to Congress but I think also some of these things were, were highlighted in the remarks President uh, Biden made. You've gone from a war-torn country, a country that was devastated, that had uh, one of the lowest per capita incomes on, on earth, to now the 10th largest economy, our sixth largest trading partner, uh, 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 an alliance, a military alliance that has uh, stood its test of time all over the place. And now, we're looking forward to where the relationship is going in the future. And so a state visit allows you to both look back, but also look forward. And I think, I think we were able to accomplish that in this visit as well. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, the thing, one of the things that struck me about this particular state, so it's the first um, leader from Asia, that's obviously correct. that's been given this honor. There, there have been many leaders that have come to Washington, DC, come to the white house, but this is, the first one that was given, and and um, and it was just such a beautiful day too. Right? Yeah, it was just an amazing day. Yeah. I don't know if any of you went to the arrival ceremony, but it was just a beautiful morning yeah. when that when that happened. And then uh, and then of course the the pageantry pieces of it are the morning South Lawn arrival ceremony, and then the evening state dinner, um, uh, which is you know just a magical thing. So um, really, really very very special occasion. The um, Mark, so the document that came out of the of the visit that has gotten the most most attention is something called the Washington Declaration. Yep. Um, um, this is a, a new document in the alliance. This is so. This is the 70th anniversary of the alliance, 70th anniversary of the Mutual Defense Treaty. On the 70th anniversary, the two leaders produced the Washington Declaration which focus, focuses a great deal on um, extended nuclear deterrence. So maybe you could uh, take us through sort of your views of this and how why it's considered significant by the United States. Well, extended deterrence is one of those um, political science terms that most people don't follow very much. But what it basically means is a pledge for the nuclear umbrella provided by the United States. Uh, extends over the Republic of Korea. Um, 
extended deterrence has been offered to Korea, Japan, and our NATO allies in Australia. And it is a, it is a, a commitment that these countries do not need to develop their own nuclear deterrent. And that in the event of a, uh, uh, of a certain type of attack on the country, the United States is committed to the full defense. So the Washington de de Declaration was issued in part because of the misbehavior on the part of the DPRK recently. You've seen that tempo of uh, ballistic missile tests over the course of the last year. There is a concern, I think, in a lot of quarters, I'm sure professors here have talked about it, that with the concern people have on uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine or saber rattling, the PRC's making towards Taiwan, that the DPRK might be emboldened to do something uh, risky. And so underscoring our commitment to the defense of Korea and the document itself talks about there'll be manifestations of that. You know, our nuclear triad consists of ballistic missile submarines, of uh, air assets uh, and uh, missiles. Um, so there will be more demonstrations of those together with mechanisms to talk about how nuclear weapons would be used in times of crisis. Going along with that as well was a pledge by President Yoon not to seek nuclear weapons. Now, this has been something that has boiled up in certain quarters in Korea for a number of years. Um, you've seen the polling, uh, Dr. Cha, I know has followed this for, for years. Some of the polling, frankly, I think it's kind of questionable, but some of the polling suggests that the majority of Koreans are interested in exploring whether to have a nuclear option themselves. However, when you ask follow-up questions such as, so where would you test these? Or how are you, how much are you willing to pay for these? Or are you willing to lose all access to civilian nuclear power because treaty ally, uh, treaties uh, uh, require that? Are you still willing to pursue a nuclear option? And people quickly say no. But anyway, it was uh, uh, President Yoon, uh, I think courageously spelled out very clearly, Korea does not seek nuclear weapons, but does want the, uh, the clear expression of our nuclear deterrent, uh, as we spelled out in the Washington Declaration. So I want I want to follow up on the your, the second point in a minute, but um, it, but in terms of the declaration, so um, I want to highlight just some of the key phrases that struck that stuck out to me. So one of them is um, this phrase about the alliance commits to engage in deeper cooperative decision making decision making on nuclear deterrence, that term cooperative decision-making. I, I mean, the reason I do this is that when I was in government, Marx in government, people spend hours, days of their life putting these documents together where every word matters and nobody really reads them. Um, so, uh, but there, there's language in here to me that was really new and different. So obviously the creation of this nuclear consultative group, the NCG, right, mm -hmm. um, but then it says the NCGC to, to, to strengthen extended deterrence, discuss nuclear and strategic planning, yep. right? which is, you know, very important and significant language with regard to what the two allies are, are committing to. Um, and then also these, um, these tabletop exercises with strategic command. Like these, for somebody, someone who's worked on this alliance for a lot of his career, someone who's sort of worked on it and studied it. These were these were really unprecedented yep. statements. So, um, so anyway, so great credit to to you and to the Korean government for putting this together. On the second point, as you said, 
there was um, so because this is a big document and being an important document, it there naturally are reactions to it. Mm -hmm. um, and the reaction from the left was this document is too strong. It's warmongering, I think, was yep. the adjective that was used. And on the right, there was a lot of uh, there was criticism actually from um, and Michelle Lee's uh, of the Washington Post or Twitter feed. He, um, he listed some of the criticisms that came on the editorial pages of conservative yep. South Korean newspapers um, about um, uh, how they were not happy with the fact that President Yun reiterated South Korea's commitment to the non-proliferation treaty regime. Um, and so uh, usually in government, when the left doesn't like it and the right doesn't like it, you're probably doing the right thing. <laughs> you're probably right in the middle. But did the, um, so I guess the question is, did the reaction on the right surprise you guys? Or? Not, not really, because it's been there for a while. You know, I, I don't think it's a very deeply held view. Uh, and frankly, as I alluded to before, when you start scratching it, um, and I've talked to Koreans who, who say Korea needs to have its own nuclear deterrent because uh, the DPRK threat is so strong. And then oftentimes some of them will say, and because we are not uh, convinced that the United States would put at risk San Francisco in order to save Seoul. And the pushback to a stance like that is, well, wait a minute, we've got we've got 30 some odd thousand American service members in Korea in any given day. And they're usually about a quarter of a million American citizens, most of them working in and around the Seoul area. So Americans are in harm's way should, uh, God forbid, a crisis come up. So the not risking San Francisco for Seoul is similar to an argument that de Gaulle's France had back in the day about not risking Paris for New York or not risking New York for Paris. The other arguments, though, on the right of saying, well, the only thing that would deter the DPRK, since it is uh, hell bent on acquiring uh, and having a larger nuclear arsenal, is for the ROK to have uh, its own arsenal. Uh, we push back at that and say, OK, let's think this through. If you do acquire a nuclear arsenal, where are you going to test it? Jeju, Busan, Seoul, where are you going to do it? It's a small country. How are you going to pay for it? Because it is expensive to, to build, develop, and maintain uh, securely these types of assets. And then because of the non-proliferation regime that exists around the world, any country that develops a nuclear capability, there are consequences. And Korea, because it has its own civilian nuclear program, would you put that at risk? Um, some people speculate that when the right in Korea raises this, it is in effect to get what we ultimately uh, provided, which was a very clear black and white commitment that we are serious about uh, extending the nuclear umbrella. And again, this is a generational thing. You know, uh, uh, Victor and I, when we went to school, uh, the Cold War was still on. And so we learned about a lot of this stuff in the course of our studies as undergrads and stuff. And it dawns on me when I talk to a lot of the, the the younger officers at the State Department, we need to regularly just kind of update an understanding of what nuclear deterrence is. Um, yeah, so I mean, the the uh, the interesting thing about that, so a couple of things. The first is um, the polling. So some of you may be familiar that there have been a rash of polls in South Korea about 
acquisition of nuclear weapons that show like 60 to 70 percent believe that uh, South Korea should have nuclear have nuclear weapons. Um, what the interesting thing to me when I look at those polls is, so you have 60 or 70 percent who want nuclear weapons. Then the next question is, um, do you believe that the United States would defend South Korea? And 60 to 70 percent say yes. yes. Which, uh, if you think about it, it's not logical. You would expect that second number to be much lower, right? If you're in favor of acquiring nuclear capability, you would expect that second number to be much lower. And then the third qu uh, uh, question is, um, do you think acquisition of South Korean nuclear weapons will denuclearize North Korea? And the answer there is like less than 20% exactly. say yes. So, so I think that polling doesn't really tell us much now, but there's no denying there has been clearly an echo effect. Yep. Right? And, and it's not come from official circles. It's out there, but you guys, when you, when the summit comes together, you have to deal with that, right? Exactly. You have to deal with that echo chamber. So, and you know, one surprising thing on this too, Victor, was, um, you know, a lot of us geek out about, uh, uh, international politics and recognize the U.S. nuclear deterrent only exists with certain U.S. allies. Um, but after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we did hear from quarters in Korea, well, wait a minute, you didn't uh, offer nuclear deterrence to Ukraine. And the answer is, no, we didn't, because Ukraine is not a treaty ally. Poland is. And so if Russia had had threatened Poland, we are treaty obligated to provide certain assurances. We're not, we're not, this is not something we bandy about lightly. Yeah. And, and your second point about the, the, the community, I mean, the, the Americans that are on the ground in Korea, 20,500 troops, you know, hundreds, uh, um, um, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans, hundreds of thousands, if you can include Japan as well. Yep. Um, this is in our, extended deterrence report, this is what Joe Nye called the community of fate, right? Yeah, exactly. That there is that they are linked together. Um, and you can't imagine a scenario in which there's conflict on the Korean Peninsula in which, I mean, to put it very bluntly, American lives would be at stake and the United States would be committed. So yep. um, you mentioned, you used the Ukraine example. So let me ask you about that. One thing that struck me, moving from the declaration, the Washington Declaration to the Joint Statement, one thing that struck me was the very prominent paragraph on Ukraine at the very top, right? Literally at the very top of this. Um, maybe perhaps you could tell us about um, what was the thinking behind that? Um, what is uh, what is your sense of um, the, the South Korean government's uh, conversation and commitment on this issue? I, I have been really struck, and most of us have been. It's, it's natural to contrast Korea's response to Russia's invasion of Crimea nine years ago to what happened last year. And it's just night and day different. Nine years ago, I think not just Korea, but Japan, Australia, a number of countries, very muted response. I think at that time, a lot of it was due to uh, a desire not to push away Putin's Russia because uh, Seoul at that time felt like Russia could be helpful on DPRK talks. Very, very different now. And it does seem to come from the heart from President Yoon himself. If you recall in his inauguration in Seoul, he used the word freedom repeatedly. Yeah. And if you recall in his speech to the joint session of Congress, he did the same thing. And he talks about shared values and the community of nations and the responsibilities 
we have to uphold those. And I don't, I mean, that's sincere coming from him. So having place of prominence at the joint statement, talking about our shared desire to see this conflict resolved uh, in the appropriate way. But then behind that, of course, the commitments that Korea have made and the, the assistance Korea has provided to Ukraine and already having discussions about uh, rebuilding Ukraine, that's going to be a global effort uh, to rebuild its infrastructure. And Korea is in the forefront of that. What, what, um, what struck me about um, the, uh, the, the document um, and what President Yun has said before is, so in the run-up to the summit, President Yun did an interview, I think it was with Reuters and yep. the Washington Post, and where he talked, where he, so he has a tendency that government officials like Mark or even leaders that they should not do, which is he likes to answer hypothetical. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. So he did get a hypothetical on Ukraine, and he said that basically if there are continued uh, atrocious attacks on civilian and civilian infrastructure that, you know, Korea would consider providing direct assistance, which got a lot of headline news. Again, not a policy, but a hypothetical that yeah. he answered. But what struck me was that the, the document used that same language, civilian and civilian infrastructure. Um, and you don't have to comment on this, which makes me think that, um, you know, he's, he's thinking about what more he can do uh, for the reasons that you described. Um, it's not so much a, about Ukraine, but it's about protecting freedom and democracy. And these are things that he believes in. Like he's, he didn't know anything about foreign policy before he became president, but he figured out what he believes in. Yep. And he believes in freedom and democracy. So that's very interesting. Let me go to the, uh, the next piece of this, which is, um, this, the, the summit really sort of laid out all of these new areas in mm -hmm. which the alliance will work uh, together on, you know, Emerging tech, uh, right? Um, Cybersecurity, like uh, um, maybe you'd like to talk sure. a little bit about those things. Well, and I th some of this is reflected in the choreography of the state visit. And you'll remember this from your time at the National Security Council. We work really hard to try to paint a picture of, of a relationship. And so President Yoon was in the area for a number of days. And if you recall, uh, he went to the Korean War Memorial. Uh, paid tribute to the uh, to the soldiers who from all over the world who died during the Korean War. So a real commemoration of what came in the past. But then in the statement and in his remarks to Congress, and then subsequently in his remarks up in Boston, um, looking forward. And, you know, he uses that phrase global pivotal state. And it's kind of clunky, you know, in English at times. But I think there's a general understanding, and it has been for a while, some of this predated uh, President Yoon too, of the future of Korea is going to be much more engaged in the planet. And it's gonna be much more engaged in emerging technologies, in the arts and other things. And he made reference to that in the document, he made reference to that in the speeches. I mean, uh, you guys, it's, this is an expert audience. So a lot of you guys follow Korea. But it is frustrating at times when I talk to people I grew up with about Korea and say, look, it's our sixth largest trading partner. We all benefit from all these incredible uh, uh, consumer goods that we get from Korea. But if you look forward, if you look at next generation semiconductors, if you look at artificial intelligence, if you look at quantum computing, Korea is going to be a huge factor in all of that. So there was discussion about 
How do we facilitate joint research and development? How do we do such mundane things as allow uh, engineers and smart people to get visas to travel to each other's countries to do that? And then uh, uh, the president made, our president made comments about all the investment going both ways. You know, you look at the, the Hyundai plant in Georgia, you look at these EV battery plants in Kentucky and in Tennessee and in Michigan and elsewhere. You look at Netflix in Korea, which to me is this incredible thing of uh, cutting edge U.S. company tapping into brilliant, creative Koreans, giving them a platform. And now it's a multi-billion dollar industry that everyone's trying to tap into. So now Disney's there and, and all the other uh, 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 companies that, that create content that we all enjoy. That's the future of the relationship. So while we do spend a lot of time talking about extended deterrence and uh, you know military technology and those types of things, I honestly do think the future of the relationship is in these areas. And the stuff that my kids are going to uh, think about when they think about Korea is not going to be necessarily the Korean War. It's going to be all this incredible technology that's going to make life just so much more interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, to I totally agree with you on that. The, um, so, you know, one of the things that we're, we're doing is, and it's funded by the State Department, we're doing this project called Alliance 3.0, yeah. right, which is um, recruiting here in the United States, Korean graduate students studying in the United States in these new frontier areas yep. like AI, computer science, cybersecurity, and then teaching them about the alliance. Like we're going to rope you into this too, but um, um, but you know they're going to meet Phil Goldberg. Yeah. They, you know they're going to meet Vince Brooks, a bunch of people. So that th these are all people who are out there doing things that they have no idea are part of the future of the alliance. Yeah, and so. Like you said, they're the next generation. That's the next constituencies of, of the relationship. So that's and we, really amazing. And we try to capture that too. You know, the, the um, one thing that concerns us and what, one thing the United States benefits from are the number of Koreans who have studied in the United States. And then you've got, you know, for the rest of your life, you've got a, a connection that you just, uh, brings us together. Well, that number has fallen in part because of demographic issues, in part because as many of you well know, and I've got two daughters in university, American university education is very, very expensive these days. But a commitment to, because it's 2023, uh, to help fund 2023 Koreans to study in the United States and 2023 Americans to study in Korea and focus on these areas. That's, that's the wave of the future. And then there's also a Fulbright element yep. to that too. What, what was the Fulbright element? Uh, like 200 something? Korea will be, let me get the terminology right. Korea will be number one uh, Fulbright country for S&T uh, students. Nice. Full stop. Nice. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive. Yeah. That's terrific. Um, and then just not to, not to lose the point, but you mentioned the, um, the investments. I mean, these summits in the past have been featured by these very large Korean investments in the United yeah. States and then Georgia and Alabama and cars and EV batteries and foundry plants, ship foundry plants. Um, but uh, this, what was featured at this summit was investment going in the other direction, right? U.S. companies investing in South Korea headlined by the Netflix, uh, investment of almost what, three billion, yeah. three billion dollars. So that's, that, that's major. Actually, that takes us to the next topic that I wanted to talk to you about. And that is sort of economic security. Um, the, um, um, so IRA, 
Chips and Science Act and export controls. There, there weren't any big announcements on these things, but maybe you can give us a sense of how that it, how, how it's going now. It is, so I'm sure some of the audience knows the Inflation Reduction Act created some ripples in South Very Korea so. and in Europe, um, particularly with regard to the uh, the tax subsidy waivers. Yep. Um, uh, maybe you could sort of update us on where that uh, okay. that is now. The not just in the United States, but in a number of countries. I think part of it was driven by COVID. Part of it was driven by just constant intellectual property theft. Uh, a recognition that it is unwise to be overly dependent on a particular country for raw materials or a particular country as a market. So a need to diversify. Now, there's a lot of misinformation, some of it intentional, being disseminated out there that that means we want to decouple from the PRC. And we don't want to decouple from the D PRC. We want to reduce risk. The PRC remains the US third largest trading partner. It's Korea's top trading partner. It's Japan's top trading partner. No one wants to decouple. But we have seen uh, the, the PRC weaponize trade. They've weaponized tourism. They've used um, the dependency of particularly smaller countries they've had on the Chinese market to, uh, to have leverage over those countries. They've done it in Southeast Asia. They've done it with Japan with rare earths. They did it with Korea after the FAD deployment. They've done it in with European countries. It's just, and, and collectively, there's been a cry of enough is enough. And so President Biden, working with Congress, passed through the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, part of that is to encourage onshoring. Part of that is to reduce the over-dependency on single sources of raw materials. And that's had some unforeseen consequences. So this is the benefit of having close lines of communication with Korea. So when the IRA came out, those of you who follow Korea, remember um, Hyundai in particular, just really being incensed about, well, wait a minute, this is going to give our US competitors an unfair leg up. And this violates a lot of principles of free trade that have been established for decades because the American manufacturers will have tax advantages if they manufactured cars in the United States that Hyundai would not. Similar uh, complaints were raised by France when Macron was here and others. So there's been a lot of conversations going back and forth to kind of uh, mitigate some of those unintended consequences. At the same time, a number of Korean companies, because they have been investing in some of these important technologies in the United States for some time, they're over the moon about this. You know, the EV battery manufacturers uh, are just thrilled about this. The, the largest single foreign direct investment uh, in the United States is a Samsung factory in Texas. They're loving this stuff. So again, complex, complex legislation and the sausage making that is uh, foreign policy We've had to have a lot of consultations uh, with USTR, with the Treasury Secretary, with others on trying to mitigate that. We're in a better place. There's still some disagreements and there's still some concerns. And so we still got some work to do. But I think generally we're in a much better place than we were just a few months ago. Yeah. And one of the things that the document <laughs> talked about is, I mean, there is language there on acknowledging, right, that there were difficulties as a result of the IRA and, and, and that, but that the United States is committed to working with allies to try to find right. a way forward, which is, you know, I think, it, um, you know, 
an important acknowledgement of uh, of on, on the part of the United States that um, you know a lot of this is trial by error. We haven't done this right. type of stuff before, and so you know we see we create some ripples. So the next time around, the next piece of legislation or the next uh, uh, agreement, there's going to be much more consultation. I think. Um, well, and let's not forget too. I mean, you remember when you were at the NSC and 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 I, I'm at state and. I remember when I was a student, you just think these inexorable things get together and countries get together and they magically solve problems. At the end of the day, you've got to have two human beings who have a relationship and who understand each other, at least on some level, and have a commitment to bettering that relationship. This state visit really helped that. You know, President Biden, from his time in the Senate, he knows a lot of leaders around the world. He's really, he really enjoys spending time with foreign leaders. The chemistry between you and Biden was awesome. And that's what you want. You know, we we toil hard for every nanosecond to have to be choreographed and stuff. But at the end of the day, if the president of the United States wants to go over on a meeting 20 minutes, he's going to go over on a meeting 20 minutes. And he did that repeatedly with President Yoon because I think they get along well. And you could see that even with the singing Miss America Pie and, and all the other stuff. I mean, that that stuff is humorous. But it's very important in the conduct of foreign policy. Yes, I, I mean, uh, President Yin has clearly set a new bar for world leaders coming to the White House. Yeah. <laughs> that I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to surpass. Uh, no. And, and you know, he actually was good. He was. I mean, he it was, was obvious good. the man has practiced. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. A lot of karaoke, right? Probably a lot of drinking, a lot of karaoke. Yeah. Uh, but he was... So, you know, as you know, I, I was there and it was this moment where he hands the mic over. So first, there the Broadway performers did a number of songs and then they did American Pie. And then when they finished, that we thought it was the end of the performance of the evening. President Biden gets up and he goes, we understand, President, that this is your favorite song. Perhaps you'd like to sing it. And everybody in the audience was like, Oh, oh, this is risky. And then he, President Yun gets up from his seat and gets on the stage, and everybody's like, this is going to be really awkward. <laughs> and then he takes the mic, and he sings the first line of the thing, and people were just, I mean, these were cabinet secretaries yes. that were, like, screaming and whooping it up. They were, like, they were, they were they were completely shocked by how good he was. And then he sang the next verse, and people went crazy. He sang, I think, three verses, and then, um, and so by the end of it, people, I think you can see the pictures. You just see the pictures on stage, but people were asking, what was the room like? And it, it was like a rock concert. People were really going crazy. So, And you look look at the man speaking before Congress. Yeah, that was nice. That doesn't happen all the time. He goes to a foreign country. He speaks before uh, the joint session of Congress in English, and he pulls it off. And it's obvious he worked really hard on that speech. And even his arrival ceremony remarks, I thought, were, were spot on. So that's what you want. You know, going back to your first question about a state visit, that's what you want. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, I'm looking at my So we talked about Fulbright. Um, let me, I, and I want to give time for questions. So let me just um, finish in terms of the formal part of this program by asking you about reactions in the region. Mm. Um, how have the North Koreans reacted? How have the Chinese, how have the Japanese reacted to the... Um, North Korea, not surprisingly, 
not a big fan of, <laughs> of what came out. Uh, China really uh, came out against the Washington Declaration, uh, was pretty uh, firm about that. Japanese were really effusive in praising it. Um, you know, we uh, we just hosted, uh, because the diet's not in session, a number of Japanese parliamentarians. And, and a number of them said, wow, Yoon really, really showed some courage. And, and, and let's face it, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about was the rapprochement between Seoul and Tokyo. That's President Yoon. You know, he's really, and the polls show he's taking some hits because of this. But the Japanese are recognized. My goodness, the man has uh, courage. And I think people are seeing that. Um, everyone is excited in Southeast Asia and the Pacific about uh, President Yoon's commitment to do more in those areas on development assistance. Part of my portfolio includes the Pacific Islands. I spend a lot of time out there. Now, Korea only has embassies in uh, Papua New Guinea and in Fiji, but they're growing. And I think the quality of work that Koika does and that Korean companies do is something everyone's kind of excited about. And most people don't know, but Korea, you know, um, is heavily invested in Central America as well, um, to the tune of like 200 million US dollars on development assistance in Central America, trying to go to the root causes that have caused so many people in that part of the world to immigrate to the United States. I mean, that's a huge benefit to the United States. Plus, it helps Korea's brand, for lack of a more elegant thing. Korea is an export uh, market, uh, export-driven uh, uh, economy, and they need to have markets. Yeah, on, on your point about um, North Korea and China reaction, so, I mean, it's interesting, the, the North Koreans reacted pretty strongly yes. i think the sister came out and said all sorts of stuff about it which then makes you wonder what's the criticism that the declaration was too weak i know <laughs> i mean the proof is in the pudding right which yeah. is how the north koreans respond to it right and then on china again what struck me about the the document was um really new language on taiwan yeah. on um uh militarization of um of um Islands, yes. Um, uh, it really, I mean, I was actually surprised to see that. And and in the next sentence, they actually say South China Sea, yeah. right? And so, I can't imagine the Chinese like that. They, they hated it. But again, what Korea is doing that we welcome so much is um, expanding its horizon beyond just the area immediately around the Korean Peninsula. I mean, it, it, let's, I don't want to say DPRK is not a challenge. It is a challenge. And that will remain, you know, number one issue. But because it is the 10th largest economy, because it has global interests, Korea is playing a role in other parts of the world that it hadn't before. And we welcome that. We think that's terrific. We love the fact that Seoul and Tokyo are in a better place than they were before, because frankly, that makes us more secure. We love the fact that Albanese in Australia has a good relationship with Yoon, and there's a lot more going on there. I mean, Korea has upped its diplomatic game in a big way, and uh, I get frustrated because I'm myopic about our relationship with Korea that most of our fellow citizens in the United States aren't aware of that. Yeah, I mean, you, th that's true. But one of the interesting things in, um, I was at a conference yesterday with the with the australian think tank and one of the things that came up there is that polling in the united states i don't know if it was gallup or but polling in the united states recently 
um, showed that Americans looked at our alliances with Australia, Japan, and Korea, and actually a majority of them said that they make the United States more secure. Yeah. Right. Which is Which usually is we think about it in terms of we're providing security to others, but uh, that that is something new in the polling that we've seen. And I really do think it's a part of this coalitional diplomacy that the Biden administration has been following, been very open about the fact that um, allies need us, but we need allies. Right? Well, and, and you see that in the document. We're talking about NATO. In a document between the United States and Korea, we're talking about NATO because uh, we call the AP4, the Asia-Pacific Four, uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, all have liaison officers in Brussels at NATO headquarters. Uh, there's a lot more cross-fertilization going on between Korea and Europe about security concerns. Uh, I think that's helped Korea focus on Ukraine, but it's also helping European countries focus on uh, on East Asia. That's good. Okay, then let me ask the last question, Mark, which is, um, so we, we just had the state, state visit of President Yun. Uh, we we this week had the visit of President Marcos. Yep. Um, uh, you guys are going to G7 in Hiroshima, Hiroshima, and then you're going to Vilnius, right, in yep. Lithuania for, for NATO. Yep. Um, uh, and then there's, you know, then there's everything coming in the fall, right? So, um, so looking forward, like, could you sort of lay out for us what you think are sort of the top three priorities as you start planning and thinking about all these trips what are sort of the top three priorities i think i think um the war in ukraine even though that's not in our immediate bailiwick but i think there is a recognition of there's a responsibility those of us who are like-minded have to make sure that a country cannot invade another country and that ukraine must not lose that war and so lashing ourselves up with like-minded countries, I think, is going to continue to be a, a big issue. Uh, Japan's head of the G7 this year, and of course, uh, uh, Prime Minister Kishida's hosting leaders in, in Hiroshima coming up. A big focus of Japan's leadership this year will be pushing back at economic coercion. And what tools do we collectively have to protect each other? And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. We've seen the weaponization of trade. Uh, now that COVID is beyond us, I think tourism, again, the Chinese have been, uh, uh, I saw it in Vietnam, we've seen it in uh, Palau, other places where overnight uh, Chinese tourists disappear and whole sectors of economies are hurt. So what tools do we collectively have to deter China from doing that? Um, I think there's a growing uh, desire to come up with more uh, transparent rules in the war about development finance. Uh, it's not it, I, I tried to explain this to the kids I, I grew up with and their eyes glaze over. But I think coming up with international standards to help countries around the world meet their um, needs for global climate change and other things is going to require a lot of money. And it's going to require development assistance that has to be done in a transparent way. And right now, there are no rules. Well, there are rules, but uh, a number of countries don't abide by them. I think those are those are themes that I see coming about. In, in addition to your list, you know, we've got the Quad Summit in Sydney oh, right, yeah. that'll be coming up. Uh, lots and lots of engagement between uh, senior U.S. leaders and their Asia-Pacific counterparts. That's awesome to see. I mean, it's a lot of work. But the fact that uh, 
we're lashed up the way we are. And the, the fact that we're using our alliance systems in these, we call them mini laterals in creative ways. I kind of geek out about that, but it's really, um, it's really neat to see these cross pollinizations when Australians and Koreans get good ideas and, and we steal them and, and, you know, try to glom onto them. That's the way it ought to work. So in many, yes, in many ways, this, the, you know, what traditionally has been a hub and spoke system of sort of these bilateral alliances with the United States in the center increasingly have all different geometries now, right? You know, triangles, quadrilaterals, pentagons, like all these, all these things happening. And, and, and I, 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 the pace of what you guys are doing is really frenetic. I mean, there is so much going on now. Um, you can't like every week there's a, there's a major, uh, uh, something on, on that, that involves the Indo-Pacific. I mean, again, like this week, two back-to-back summit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel for you guys and the folks at NSC, that's a lot of work. Two it back-to-back is. That's back-to-back what summit. we need. That's why we need to recruit. That's why you need, like yeah, guys. We, we need our Pickering Wrangle and exactly. Payne fellows to, to get in there and get in the mix. So, um, so with that, let me, um, close the session and thank, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Mark Lambert for joining us. Thank you to uh, to the students and the Georgetown community for coming out on a beautiful Friday afternoon to be with us. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Victor. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.